Welcome back to the program. For reasons that are both complicated and simplistic, immigration has become the issue of our time. Fifty years ago, the passage of the Immigration and Naturalization Act put in place the system we have today, a system that helped make us a nation of modern-day immigrants and set the stage for the diversity of Asian Americans coming into the U.S. today. We're going to talk about this with my guest, Erica Lee. She's the granddaughter of Chinese immigrants who entered the U.S. through Angel Island and Ellis Island. She grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. She received her Ph.D. from UC Berkeley. And now she teaches history at the University of Minnesota, where she's also the Rudolph J. Vicoli Chair in Immigration History and the Director of Immigration History Research. It is my pleasure to welcome Erica Lee here to talk about her new book, The Making of Asian America, A History. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. A delight to have you here. Let's go back 50 years. Talk a little bit about the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965 and and, and what it did, what it put in place that we still have today. Right. So uh, in a month, October 3rd, is going to be the 50th anniversary of the signing of this law. President Lyndon Johnson gathered some notable politicians, brought them to New York City, to Liberty Island. So this is where the Statue of Liberty is, is based and made a, a great show of, of signing this, um, this law uh, and enacting it. And it was the last time in our history, it's been 50 years, since we passed comprehensive immigration reform. And what it did is that it really transformed the ways in which we let immigrants into the country. So this is one of those forgotten laws, but I think in the next month, uh, folks will really start to pay attention to, to what it did. We had a, a system that was explicitly discriminatory. It really privileged immigrants from Northern and Western Europe. It greatly restricted immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, and it barred almost all Asian immigrants from coming into the country. So 80% of the immigrants before uh, that time were, were coming from Europe, after 1965, 80% of the immigrants are now coming from Asia and Latin America. The, the law really opened up the doors to, like you said, the diversity of immigration that we see today. Tell us a little bit about the political climate at the time that gave rise to this act, to this law, and really what precipitated it then, because it's hard to imagine it passing in its current form today. Absolutely. It's hard to imagine that uh, both sides of, of the political divide could, could agree on immigration. We know, we know that there are some pretty extreme plans um, being proposed right now by some of the, uh, by some of the presidential candidates. So, so let's go back 50 years. We had just passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We had just passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So civil rights, equality, the end of formal discrimination in our laws was really the political uh, mood of the day. We realized that this was something that we needed to do domestically, but also we're engaged in a Cold War, and we're spreading these messages across the world that it's the U.S. and not the Soviet Union. It's capitalism, democracy, and freedom, not communism, that is the way that um, other countries should follow. But we, we faced this really awkward situation in that when we looked at our immigration laws, or before we passed the civil rights laws, it was very clear that the United States was not living up to those ideals. We were, were discriminating against folks based on their race. We were 
letting some folks in based on their nationality, but barring almost all others. So it was both domestic and international relations that really uh, led to this political will to pass immigration reform. And how did the Asian American community, both that was there inside the U.S. and outside, respond to this once it was passed? So, you know, the interesting thing about this law is that historians describe it as having unintended uh, consequences. The main beneficiaries of the 1965 Immigration Act that politicians believed they were helping were actually Southern and Eastern Europeans. So I just, you know, mentioned a few minutes ago how um, Southern and Eastern Europeans had been greatly restricted. All of the testimony was really based on how we should right this wrong and how it was so unfair that Italians, for example, and Polish uh, folks, for example, um, had their um, immigration allowances cut by 90 percent um, after uh, 1924. So the, the impact on Asian immigrants was really not expected. It was agreed that some of the most egregious um, bans on immigration should be, should be lifted, but it was more in terms of uh, this is what is, would be good for our U.S. international relations. After all, we're um, friendly with Japan now. We're, we really rely on Japan and South Korea and Taiwan and the Philippines. Uh, in our new engagement in Asia. And so this is the right thing to do. But it really wasn't expected that so many Asian immigrants would come. Um, but they did. They did, and that is why now in, in the Bay Area, one in four uh, people are, are uh, immigrants and, and Asian-American. The other part of that is that we, we tend to talk about Asian immigration in a monolithic way, and in fact, it represents people from a diverse background of countries. Absolutely. There, the census counts 24 different ethnic groups that uh, comprise the Asian Pacific American umbrella. So that includes everyone from me, um, whose family has been in, in California. My great-great-great-grandfather came to seek gold in the, the gold rush in the 1850s. So someone like me, whose family's been here for generations, and then... Uh, the international students that, that just arrived on campus uh, yesterday, uh, everyone from China, descended from China to Burma to Indonesia, it's, it's a great diversity of folks, and it makes it both uh, exciting but also challenging to think about how um, these, these different ethnic groups um, compare, contrast, how their experiences have been shaped uh, together but also distinctly. It's interesting about where they chose to settle. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, California certainly has the largest Asian population today. It does, absolutely, um, as well as Hawaii and, and New York. So what's fascinating about immigration in the 21st century is that immigrants, not just from Asia, but also from Latin America and Africa, they are settling in those traditional uh, places, the traditional gateways into the United States, New York, uh, Miami, L.A., San Francisco, but they're also transforming places that have not seen uh, tremendous immigration in about a century. So take where I live today in, in America's heartland in the upper Midwest. We had a great boom of, of immigration in the um, mid to late 19th century, mostly Scandinavian immigrants, but now also in the 21st century, 
we have had a tremendous increase uh, in both the Latino population, the Asian population, as well as um, the African uh, immigrant and refugee population. One of the things, and you talk about this in the making of, of Asian America, is this sense of, of the Asian population in the U.S. being a kind of model minority. What does that mean? And, and talk a little bit about how that perception evolved. Yeah, so the model minority is this idea that Asian Americans are the models for other minorities. That, And you see this in a lot of the media discourse, um, that they're doing things, quote-unquote, right. They um, get ahead by studying hard, acing their SATs, um, listening to their parents, um, holding on to uh, clear and strong family values, and not making a fuss, not protesting in the streets, not complaining about um, discrimination or about ongoing persistent inequality. Um, so this idea is, is, is held up and really um, spread um, to give the message that everything is okay, that the American system still works. And for those who are lagging behind, um, it's because they're not working hard enough. They're not trying hard enough. It's a really inaccurate uh, stereotype. We know that the Asian American population is represented at both extremes of the economic spectrum. So there are those who are making per capita higher income than whites, also have a higher degree of um, uh, higher percentage of bachelor's and professional degrees. But then there's also those who are in generational poverty, who's uh, are still have less than an eighth grade education. It's just a great diversity. But that model minority idea is also just really pernicious. It's, it's used to obscure some of the ongoing um, uh, inequality in American society for all Americans um, and uh, can really be used to divide people rather than unite them. How does the Asian American community view this sense of being seen as this model minority? So the, the um, idea that Asian Americans were models for other minorities, it has its roots in World War II, but it really came into the public discourse during the, the Civil Rights Movement um, and during the Cold War, and it, it was really used explicitly to contrast Asian Americans to African Americans who were growing more militant in their demands uh, for the, an end to institutionalized discrimination. And there was a, a great backlash amongst Asian Americans. Activists on college campuses and in communities really protested um, against that term. Uh, they banded together uh, across ethnic groups, but also with African Americans, American Indians, Latinos, to, uh, to fight for civil rights for all and to, um, ac to gain access to uh, relevant education, social services, et cetera. And that's a, that's a challenge that continues for, for Asian Americans today. To what extent do Asian Americans view the current debate about immigration and the discussion, the heated rhetoric about immigration, as an issue to be concerned about for them? It's definitely something that has begun to be on people's radar more and more. There have always been... Um, organizations, policymakers, politicians, and, um, and activists who have consistently said, 
we need comprehensive immigration reform, not only to fix a broken immigration system across the board, but also because Asian Americans are affected by the broken system. So the visa backlogs, for example, for immigrants from the Philippines and from China and Korea um, can be decades long, and, and it really uh, hurts the, the attempts at family reunification and um, other things that, that immigrants want to achieve here in the United States. But even more recently, I mean, as, as recently as last week, with um, presidential candidate Jeb Bush talking about so-called anchor babies not being uh, Latinos, but rather Asians, um, Asian Americans have really entered into the debate even more. And recent reports have indicated that the fastest growing group of undocumented immigrants in the United States are not from Mexico or Latin America, but from Asia. And so I think we're going to see increasingly the need for Asian Americans to speak out about immigration issues, um, hopefully in, in allegiance with others who are also seeking comprehensive immigration reform. And will they be approaching it, and, and I know this is, it's not monolithic as, as we touched on, but will they be approaching the, the need for reform and these issues in a different way than other minority groups? Perhaps. I think that um, there might be more of a focus on expanding the H-1B visa category. These are, that's the visa category that allows in um, highly skilled professional workers. Um, I know that many companies in Silicon Valley are seeking to uh, enlarge those categories and the numbers coming in. Um, but I do think that many folks who have been looking at the issue of immigration reform see that all of these pieces are part of a whole and that it's, it really doesn't make sense to um, pass just, just you know, single pieces of it. So I, I think that there could be some issues that are perhaps more relevant to Asian Americans and Asian immigrants, um, but also I think many see it as uh, part of a larger system that needs to be fixed. If we look at the, the millions of Asian immigrants from Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, the refugees that came and settled in the U.S. following the wars in Southeast Asia, is that group different in any way? Do they see themselves different in any way? It can be. I think initially in those early years of resettlement after 1975 through the 1980s, um, both Americans and um, Southeast Asian refugees saw themselves as different as the longer-term uh, Asian-American groups that had been here for, for decades or generations. But over time, uh, the second generation, even third generation, are becoming more blended within that larger category of, of Asian-America. Um, and so seeing some of the, the same similarities, how so across the board, people are affected by that model minority idea or affected by immigration laws or by stereotypes. Um, so I think over time, there's been more similarities um, rather than differences. How has the Asian American community responded to seeing the focus shifted away from them, which it was on for, for many, many years, and shifted in, in a negative sense to both the population from Mexico and from Latin America in general? That's a great question. I, I think that um, on the one hand, there's probably a sense of relief that for generations, for decades, 
Asian immigrants had been the despised minority, the inassimilable uh, foreigner, the yellow peril, the immigrant invasion, and that uh, over time, beginning in World War II up to the present, um, Asian Americans have been made into the model minority. And so I think for, for many folks, there's, um, there's a sense of relief. But I also think that there's a growing concern amongst many that um, Asian Americans remain vulnerable, that there's still a burgeoning uh, anti-immigrant sentiment. I think just this week there's news in San Francisco about some graffiti that um, has been placed on, on some buildings that say no more Chinese. And so I, I think that Asian Americans should be concerned that the bottle minority stereotype doesn't, doesn't keep them safe from discrimination or racism and that um, the, the, the system and this um, idea that the immigration, current immigration system is, is broken affects them as well as um, Latinos and, and um, other immigrants. If we look at this historically, what, if anything, do we learn from looking at the, the waves of European immigration of different minor, ethnic and minority groups, the way they were treated, the way ultimately they were accepted. What do we learn as it relates to immigration today and Asian immigration specifically? What we learn is that American history is extremely complicated, that there are some groups that are in and accepted, and that there are some groups that are out and excluded and that that can change over time, uh, but that it's not necessarily, uh, you know, once one group makes it up the ladder, it's not necessarily that they can't be um, um, fall down a couple of, of rings. I think that especially for Asian Americans, um, the present status, the, the past status, the present status, and the future status of Asian Americans, for better or for worse, is, has always been tied to U.S.-Asian relations, because there has been this perception that no matter how many generations Asian Americans are in the United States, they're still somehow connected to Asia. Uh, whenever we have a blip in our foreign relations with a certain Asian country, uh, we often see some negative attitudes, xenophobia uh, directed at the Asian American group related to that homeland, whether they are uh, recent immigrants or generations uh, in the country. So take, for example, what happened after 9-11. We saw hate crimes directed at uh, Arab Americans, Muslim, South Asian Americans increase tenfold um, because of our anxiety and concern over terrorism, and we scapegoated the most convenient immigrant group that was in our, our midst. Um, so I think that Asian Americans really do need to be thinking about this turning point that the community faces. We've come a long way um, in the past 50 years, um, but there's also still some work to be done and some issues that need to be attended to within the community and in coalition with others. How much larger a problem is the immigration debate in a world that is more and more borderless as it is today? So I think our challenge... Um, we see this in the news that's coming out of Europe. Our challenge is exactly that. How do we balance a trend where people are increasingly on the move? 
and it could be related to war, freedom from persecution, but it also could be related to just the ways in which our world is becoming more integrated and interconnected through globalization. How do we balance that with nation states' um, desire, need, right to to protect its borders, to determine who should be let in and who should be let out, and for or, and who should be kept out, and for what reasons? It is, is it only for our economic benefit, or do we have room also to be humanitarian and allow in those um, purely because it's the right thing to do? It, it's it's the challenge, and it's not just the challenge for the United States, but but as we're seeing today, it is the challenge for um, for every nation around the world. It really raises the the question that you hear asked occasionally, although nobody likes to talk about it, is really what the role is of borders in a more interconnected and global world that we have today. It's true, uh, and it's a question that I'm not sure we're really getting at. I, I don't think that uh, the immigration debate has really evolved to um, consider these bigger and more global issues. We seem to be focused on um, our only our interior um, situation and our and our most immediate borders, so the border with Mexico, for example, and even the even the attention on the U.S.-Mexico border is out of date. We are mm-hmm. at a period where immigration from Mexico is at a, a net zero level. So that means there's a, about an equal number of folks from Mexico returning to Mexico as there are coming in. And in, in essence, you know, the border is, quote unquote, no longer a problem. Um, but rather, what are we, you know, what's the system that we're going to put in place uh, for the next 50 years? And and I'm not sure we've, we've, we're at that point where we're having that conversation yet. And in many ways, the problem and the attitudes really stem from that exact point that you're making. Because we do live in this more globalized world, because borders are becoming less and less important, because the amount of change that has been precipitated as a result of that and that that represents, the fear that it generates is really what's driving, So the fear of change, the fear of difference is what's driving so much of the debate itself. Absolutely, and it's not just... um it's change on so many levels. So it's change in terms of the makeup of, of America, the makeup of the U.S. population. The projection is that uh, the country will be a majority minority by 2044, and that scares some people. Um, it's also related to our changing role in the United, of, of the United States in the world, our economic power, are we, you know, still going to be able to be in the top, top two economies? Um, what about in the next 50 years? What about our um, leadership, political leadership internationally? And so we really, we're at a tipping point, um, in, both in terms of how we see ourselves as a nation, but also where we want to be in the world, how we're going to adapt to perhaps some change where we're no longer the largest economy, the, um, the global leader, and and then what does that mean for what it means to be an American? Erica Lee, her new book is The Making of Asian America. It's just out from Simon & Schuster. 
Erica, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.